WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. This episode contains discussion about eating disorders and how they're related to athletes. This may be disturbing for some listeners. Eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of all mental disorders, and when it comes to athletes, it's no exception. To talk about abnormal eating disorders and what significant problem it can be for athletes, we'll be talking to Riley and Donald today about their research. Can you introduce yourselves for us, please? Hello, my name is Riley Mantine. I'm a third-year medical student at Michigan State University's College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm planning on going into psychiatry at the end of all of this schooling, and I'm looking forward to discussing the topic. Hi, this is Donald Gusva. I'm a third-year medical student, and I'm looking to go into sports medicine. Thanks for joining us today, Riley and Donald. Can you explain to us and our audience about your research in disordered eating with athletes? Sure. Thank you for the introduction. So the first thing I'd like to mention right off the beginning is that disordered eating and eating disorders are very commonly confused and kind of used interchangeably. In reality, they aren't the same thing. Eating disorders are the things that we think of when we think of going to see a psychiatrist or a doctor, and that's stuff like anorexia or bulimia, whereas stuff like disordered eating is a subclinical spectrum of eating behaviors that can lead to an eating disorder. So based upon that concept, we are trying to identify disordered eating before it has a chance to progress to an eating disorder. The big thing between the two is that an eating disorder is way more expensive, way more difficult, and way more challenging in all senses of the way for the physician and for the patient when it comes to treatment. So if we can identify disordered eating before it becomes that, it becomes way easier to treat in comparison. Thanks for that explanation, Riley. I never realized that there was a difference between disordered eating and eating disorders. What are some common disordered eating behaviors that people exhibit before the onset of a disorder? They're actually not very unlike specific symptoms of eating disorders, such as food restriction, problems with body satisfaction, avoiding mirrors, use of laxatives, and similar things like that. The big distinguishing factor is that they don't meet all the medical criteria for an eating disorder. It makes sense to me that some of their behaviors would be restrictions on their diet and that they would be so self-conscious that they don't want to look into a mirror. However, to understand the difference a little bit more, how are eating disorders specifically characterized? Eating disorders are defined via the DSM-5 or the Diagnostic Manual of Psychiatry. Pretty much it's kind of the Bible of the field. All the the psychiatric diagnoses that you guys have probably heard of all have diagnostic guidelines via that book. So they have to meet all of the different requirements for a specific eating disorder. For example, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder all have different diagnostic measures that have to be met in order to meet the diagnosis. And there's actually kind of a catch-all. They're otherwise known as OSFED that really doesn't have the strict guidelines as the other three that I mentioned but it's also very prevalent and important to mention in our discussion. People have known about eating disorders for a while now, and athletes have been notorious for having to deal with these disorders. How does looking at disordered eating change the way that athletic departments can tackle eating disorders within their athletes? The reason that it's important is because it's a fact of preventative medicine. 
Now, disordered eating cannot be potentially identified before it progresses to an eating disorder. If we can do that, there are many different clinical syndromes that we can prevent before they have a chance to manifest. For example, individuals who have disordered eating behaviors or eating disorders are much more likely to get stress fractures. So if we can prevent that, we can reduce the incidence of stress fractures. A stress fracture is a type of bone fracture that is usually due to repetitive overuse. So generally we get them in our legs if we're athletes, and they're sort of like hairline fractures that can potentially get worse if we leave them untreated. It makes a lot of sense to me that it's a preventative medicine. Stress factors can be very detrimental to an athlete's career, especially to their body. However, whenever I think of fractures, I think of a lot of it having to do with your bones. But whenever I think of disordered eating, I imagine metabolic disorders. Are there any type of disorders that could occur in their metabolism or to their blood glucose and stuff like that? I mean, a lot can happen, but there is one very defined thing called the female athlete triad. And that is, along with that bone loss, low bone density, which leads to stress fractures, the disorder eating leads to low energy availability, they're very tired all the time, and even amenorrhea or irregular periods. I remember attending multiple seminars when I was a cross-country athlete for Florida International University, and how much emphasis was made to seek help if somebody developed an eating disorder related to what you had just mentioned, Donald. I knew a lot of teammates that unfortunately suffered from stress fractures. And I wonder how the prevalence of stress fractures actually changes from sport to sport. Could you give us a little more details on this? Sure. When combing the literature, you tend to get two types of groupings on how they split up these sports. They do these six based on what they do. So endurance would be the track, cycling, swimming. The aesthetic would be gymnastics, dance, or figure skating, anything that's scored that's subjectively. Weight dependent would be wrestling, karate, judo, anything you weigh in, usually it's the combat sports. Ball sports, anything with ball in it, and then water polo. Power sports, so that's some other track stuff where you know, like shot put or power lifting or discus where you're throwing something really far. And then technical, which is, well, technical. And those are golf, alpine skiing, and rifle shooting. You can then take those six and split them into two more groups, lean and not lean. Endurance, aesthetic, and weight dependent fall into that lean group, and ball, power, and technical fall into that non-lean group. And those ones that fall into the lean group, aka sports that focus on leanness as a part of the competition, tend to have more disordered eating within it. Danny had mentioned that he used to be a cross-country runner. That was more focused on endurance. However, I used to be a dancer for over 10 years, and I danced in many different types of styles. For example, I used to do jazz, tap, ballet, hip-hop, and it was a lot of fun. And I focused more on yoga, though. These things that we're mentioning, though, are focused more on the lean category. Whenever I was a dancer, everything was about how was my body looking, if I was skinny enough, tall enough, if my hair looked good or not. And at some point, it felt like it was more about aesthetics versus my actual skill. And that makes sense. Aesthetic athlete groupings actually show higher rates of disordered eating than most other even lean groups. In certain lean studies where they didn't have aesthetic athletes, they didn't get enough power to show significance in some points. Others did, and that's why we need more research in this field. So since I used to be in cross country, I would have fallen into the lean athletic group. Now that we've talked about these different athletic groups that exist, how do you study disordered eating behaviors for these athletes? 
So that's actually kind of an interesting point of contention because different researchers have different ways of measuring things. However, in our lab, what we did was begin by creating a screening tool called the DESA-6, which is standing for the Disordered Eating Screen for Athletes. And we compared it initially to an existing screening tool, which was not meant for athletes. After we did the initial comparison, we found out that there was a need for the tool. So we began by recruiting high schoolers first from the Lansing area and the Midwestern area as a whole. And we invited them to take our tool and the comparison tool, which is the EAT26 or the Eating Attitudes Test 26. We did this comparison and then created a group. This next group was invited to take a guided interview with one of the clinical interviewers. And that has been using something called the Eating Disorder Examination otherwise known as the EDE-17. That's kind of the golden standard for diagnosing eating disorders or disordered eating behavior in this case. So because we have that golden standard, we wanted to compare our tool versus the golden standard based upon the interview. I appreciate that your research group was able to create its own way of assessing disordered eating. You had mentioned that you had developed something called a disordered screening tool for athletes. I'm not sure if you're allowed to tell us, but would you be able to tell us what questions you were asking on the survey to the high schoolers? Sure. There's only six questions, which is why it's called the DESA-6, and it's meant to be brief, so we can go over the questions pretty quickly. I'll actually turn it over to Donald to go over each individual question, but I'd like to mention very quickly that we established these questions based upon conjunction with the DSM-5 I mentioned earlier, which is that Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders that is the key for diagnosis, and also personal experience from semi-professional athletes. The Disordered Eating Screening for Athletes, six, screening tool is six questions. The first question is, have you had three or more injuries in the past season, or did you have a past season end early due to injury? Yes or no. Two is, do you worry about gaining weight during the off-season or when you can't train due to injury? And then that is scaled based on how often they worry. Three is, are you happy with your current weight? Yes or no. Four is, how many pounds do you think you need to lose to be at your best performance weight? And then it's ranged in five-pound intervals from one to five all the way to 15 plus. Five is, do you follow a specific diet plan to achieve your best performance weight? And six is, have you ever been told you should lose weight by someone who is not a health professional, such as a coach, fellow athlete, or family member? I remember in high school that athletics was everything to me, and I really enjoyed working with all of my teammates. There are, however, major differences between high school and college athletics. Why did your screening focus on high school athletes versus collegiate athletes? Actually, our screening tool is meant to work with all levels of competition eventually. Right now, we had to start somewhere. We kind of assumed that we would start at the bottom and work our way up. So right now, we have data collected about high school athletes, and it's proven to be a pretty functional tool within that population. We are actually currently collecting data about college athletes, professional athletes, semi-professional athletes, and kind of the weekend warrior crowd. So that's kind of a research population yet to be explored for us, but it's something we definitely want to cover in the future. Cool. I'm happy these studies are still continuing on since we're in a pandemic right now. One of the questions that really stood out to me specifically was number two, when you had asked, do you worry about gaining weight on the off season or when you're injured? 
A lot of athletes can't go outside right now due to the coronavirus pandemic. That's predominantly a lot of athletes that had to take time off. Whenever the pandemic came, they were not allowed to go out and train in the same ways that they were used to, and they weren't allowed to be with their teammates. Now that they are with their teammates, they have to physically distance, so there are a lot of changes. How do you think the pandemic is going to affect how they're feeling about gaining weight during this time? Coronavirus is kind of a strange subject in the literature of disordered eating and eating disorders right now. Because of the long time frames required to make diagnoses for eating disorders, it's pretty unclear to determine how the coronavirus has affected progression from eating disorder to disordered eating. However, there are certain populations that may be at further risk just based upon their predisposition or current demonstration of disordered eating behavior. There's future research to be done in that respect. Currently, we are going with established athletes, so people who have been in a sport for longer than the coronavirus are currently our population. And the interviews that we had normally done on campus in the Department of Psychiatry are now being conducted online. I can't imagine what it's like being an amateur athlete right now during this pandemic, especially if you have to use equipment from a particular facility. Based off of your six-question survey, how do you determine if the athlete exhibits disordered eating, and do any of the questions hold more weight than the other? We determine who has disordered eating by a score of three or more on any combination of these six questions. And each question has a weight and a area that it's looking to look into. So if we take the first one, have you had three or more injuries in the past season or was it a season-ending injury? That would be two points if you say yes and no points if you say zero. We say two points because it is one of the, I think it's the only question that actually says, hey, is there something physically going wrong with you right now? If you contrast that with the sixth question, Have you ever been told you should lose weight by someone who is not a health professional, such as a coach, fellow athlete, or family member? That's getting into the psychosocial half of it. And that can happen without causing a result, but it definitely very likely can cause a result. So yes, it would be one point, no, it would be zero points. At the end of it, though, if you have more than three points out of these six questions, it's pretty well proven that through our research that you are likely to exhibit disordered eating. I'm very concerned to hear this. I think this is really important, especially for high school students that are at a very young, impressionable age, and their self-esteem can be fragile. In your survey, specifically number six, where you say, have you ever been told that you should lose weight by someone who is not a health professional, such as a coach, fellow athlete, or family member? In my opinion, it's wrong for other people to be tearing others down, especially for their weight. It's not their place, and they're not professionals. These are high school students, and I feel like it's really important to follow up with your surveys afterwards. What happens after? Are there certain things that people can do to intervene with these students to help them? Absolutely. There are lots of different things that a number of different people can do if it is caught in the stage of disordered eating. For example, if a coach catches it, they can talk to this athlete early and see what's going on before any potential issues have the chance to expand. Additionally, dietitians, athletic trainers, even school psychologists, people that see the students frequently have the chance to intervene and speak with the student. Now, in comparison to the lengthy, expensive treatment of an eating disorder, disordered eating intervention is more multifaceted in the sense that if we catch it early, we can kind of halt its progression with a much higher success rate than that of an eating disorder. 
There was a study actually that showed nutritional counseling and a cognitive behavioral therapy session was able to reduce the progression of eating disorders to 0% in a clinical study, whereas the control group, I believe between 7 and 11% progressed to an eating disorder. If we can identify it early, be it a coach, parent, family member, doctor at a sports physical, for example, we have the chance to halt the potential progression. It's great that this survey will be able to help youth athletes and prevent them from continuing these disordered eating behaviors. Once they're screened, I'm curious about what demographic data was collected and were there any groups that showed a higher likelihood to develop these disordered eating behaviors? So we were actually pretty groundbreaking in the field of disordered eating research in that all of our participants self-identified themselves as male or female. And we ended up having a split of 48% male and 52% female. This is actually kind of special in the field of disordered eating research in that our research has males. Most of the other questionnaires will either only validate in females or ask questions that are specific to females, such as, have you stopped menstruating? So having these two groupings is actually pretty exciting to us. That said, the reason they ask these questions, mainly in female groups, is because they tend to have higher rates. And in our study, let's say, 34% of the females screened positive for disordered eating, where only 13% of the males did. Earlier in the interview, you had mentioned that in a clinical setting, an eating disorder examination is used and that it's an hour-long interview. An alternative your group came up with was a survey that would help identify individuals at risk of disordered eating without having to do an hour-long interview. How does your survey compare to the eating disorder examination used in the clinical setting? Well, that's probably the most exciting part about this tool, actually. It was 92% sensitive to the disordered eating athletes. And in the end, we had an overall accuracy of 88% in total, 87% in males and 88% in females. What does that mean? If someone screened positive or negative on this questionnaire, this questionnaire was right 88% of the time. If you had 100 people, it would be right in 88 of them. And if it's correct 88% of the time, we can understand why it would just be pretty simple and easy to administer six questions versus a eating disorder examination, which is an hour long. If you think about the sheer number of student athletes and non-student athletes in the United States, there is just simply too many to do an hour-long clinical interview with every individual one. This is something that ideally someone like a family medicine doctor could give out at a sports physical, and it would take the athlete 30 seconds to fill out completely. As we wrap up this interview, I wanted to ask, how is this research pertinent to what you want to specialize in the future once you finish your DO? Well, this research is pertinent because it is related to the field I want to go into. Mental health is a more discussed field than ever. We are, however, still at an extreme lack of psychiatrists, especially in the state of Michigan. There are over 20 counties in the state of Michigan which have no psychiatrist whatsoever. Working with populations such as this gives me an opportunity to engage with the population I would like to work with for the rest of my life. And for me, the goal of any medicine is to bring someone back to the point where they were before the disease even happened. And the best way to do that is probably to prevent the disease from even happening. 
So in the field of sports medicine, where it's very, very likely that you're going to see this multiple times, it's probably better to address it before it becomes a major problem. Both of you are going to such significant fields. I don't know how you choose it. Thanks a lot, Riley and Donald, for taking the time to talk to Danny and I about your important research with disordered eating. Before we say goodbye, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Yes, I'd love to give a huge shout out to our research mentor, Dr. Samantha Kennedy. We've been working together on this research for something like five years now. So it's nice to see it all start to finally come together. And I appreciate working with her as we move forward. And additionally, I'd like to give a big shout out to the Michigan State University Department of Psychiatry for allowing us to use their resources and for supporting us on this research venture, as well as all the wonderful, fantastic members of our lab that I have not mentioned directly. And thank you so much for having us. We're happy to be on the show. Seriously, guys, it was a great opportunity. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Dan Puentes on Impact 89 FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. The Sci-Files can be found online on scifiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on Sci-Files, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at scifiles at impact9fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.